I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, I'd like to invite you to listen to a special podcast that was recorded live at the National Constitution Center on June 1st, which is the 100th anniversary of Louis Brandeis's confirmation to the Supreme Court. This is also the launch of my thrilling new book about Justice Brandeis, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. And it's a really exciting day because joining me to discuss Brandeis and why he matters today are two of Brandeis's leading biographers, the great Philippa Strum of the Wilson Center and Melvin Urofsky of Virginia Commonwealth University. Mel and Flip have written two of the greatest biographies of Brandeis. Uh, Mel Urofsky's book is Louis D. Brandeis, uh, A Life, and Flip Strum, uh, Louis D. Brandeis, Justice for the People. And I'm so honored that they both read my book in draft and joined me to discuss it. I love the feedback we've been getting from listeners about our latest podcast, in particular, the constitutional podcast, Ask Jeff. Thank you for your questions and for writing in and interacting with me and with the Constitution Center. And in that spirit, I'd like to offer uh, what I hope will be an exciting offer to some of you listeners. And that is, if you join the National Constitution Center at a level of $100 or more, I would be honored to send you a signed copy of my book of Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. The goal of these podcasts is to engage all of you in the National Constitution Center to make you feel part of this constitutional family and also to support our efforts at constitutional education. And I'd love to send you the book. And if that's a hook to get you to join, that would be wonderful. You can join at constitutioncenter.org forward slash support hyphen join forward slash membership, or just go to the website and there's a donate button and you can find it. So if you join at $100 or more, um, send me your address, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and I will send you a signed copy of the book and tell me who you'd like me to uh, make it out to. I hope you enjoy the book, and if you read it and want to tell me what you think, I would love to hear that too, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Hope you enjoy what uh, is... I'm sure going to be a riveting discussion of Justice Brandeis. Thank you so much for listening and for your feedback. And we'll be back next week with another edition of We the People. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, which Louis Brandeis would have been inspired by the fact is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Excellent. Very well done. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to welcome you to this special evening. It's so exciting to uh, share with you the publication of uh, this new book on Louis Brandeis, and also a thrill and a real honor to be joined by Brandeis's greatest living biographers, Flipstrom and Melvin Urofsky. This book is offered up as a passionate case for why Brandeis matters today, 
why he can teach us more than anyone else in the 20th century about the curse of bigness in business and government, about privacy and free speech in an age of new technologies, as well as about uh, Zionism. Uh, but it stands on the shoulders of two giants, and that's Flip and Mel. Uh, their path-breaking, comprehensive biographies of Brandeis, Flip's, uh, Louis D. Brandeis, Justice for the People, published in 1984, and Mel's uh, Louis D. Brandeis, A Life, published in 2009, are the most comprehensive biographies of Brandeis that exist. Uh, this book is a condensed study in Brandeis's thought and character. So what I want you to do is to read all three. Uh, but of course, begin with this, because it's uh, short and new. And then there's another book that I want you to read as well, which is also just out. And we're just, I'm just so thrilled to celebrate it. Flip has a new book out, Speaking Freely, Whitney versus California and American Speech Law. It's just a beautiful uh, exploration of Brandeis's path-breaking concurrence in the Whitney case, which, as we'll discuss in a moment, is the most important and powerful defense of the need for free speech in American democracy of the 20th century. So the timing couldn't be better, and we have so much to talk about. Um, let me set the stage by First of all, noting this great uh, little um, tributes to our hero that are right beside me. This bust of Brandeis peering at Mel and Flip was given to me by uh, Alan Weston, the great privacy scholar, right before he died. And Brandeis was a hero of his as well as mine, and I cherish it very much. And this great bobblehead Mel just gave me when he walked in today, I'm so <laughs> excited uh, by it. Uh, uh, Brandeis is sitting on a train called Erie, one of his most important cases was the Erie and Tompkins case, which has to do with federal common law, and I'm going to waggle it uh, with appreciation at every opportunity. So um, uh, Mel and Flip, the thesis of this book, which just builds on your path-breaking work, is that Brandeis was preeminently a Jeffersonian. I know that Hamilton is the man of the moment. He's the rock star. He's the one that we, uh, everyone emulates. But Brandeis is part of a Jeffersonian tradition that distrusted bigness in business and in government. Uh, unlike Hamilton, who exalted the property classes, Brandeis is building on the philosophy of Jefferson, who saw American history as a clash between financiers and oligarchs on the one hand and farmers and small producers on the other. And Jefferson believed that it was only the small man, as he called it, in small communities who could fully develop his faculties of, felt, of, of reason and fully participate in American democracy. Jefferson introduced a constitutional amendment that would have banned Congress from setting up monopolies or exclusive uh, privileges uh, for corporations. And Brandeis builds on that anti-monopolistic tradition of economic populism by arguing uh, about the importance of breaking up the banks, sound familiar? And also the need to curb the curse of bigness with countervailing forces that will ultimately protect liberty. So what I want to begin with is the question of, uh, first of all, how Brandeis became a Jeffersonian. Flip, you say in your great book, he read Jefferson more and more in his later years. It was 1926 and 1927, just as he's about to write his great Whitney opinion, that he reads 
Jefferson's uh, letters, and soon after that reads this path-breaking biography by Albert J. Nock, Thomas Jefferson. Nock is a anti-New Deal libertarian. He's not a progressive at all, but he calls Jefferson the great libertarian and praises his uh, devotion to small businesses against oligarchs. And Brandeis is so influenced by this book that he demands that a copy of it be distributed to every student in Kentucky, and Nock reciprocates the tribute by dedicating the reprint edition to Brandeis. So Flip, tell us, since you first introduced uh, this theme, how Brandeis became a Jeffersonian and how that influenced his outlook. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you a story, if I may, about um, thinking about how Brandeis became a Jeffersonian. Um, some of you may know that there was a fairly well-known Harvard Law School professor named Paul Freund, who had been a clerk of Justice Brandeis and who elevated Justice Brandeis above all things. When I was working on my biography of Justice Brandeis, I tried to interview all of the still living former clerks of Brandeis, and Freud particularly because he had written a great deal about Brandeis. And when I went to see him, I said, among the things that I know about Brandeis, and of course I knew everything because I was writing biographies, so I knew everything at all, um, is that he was a great Jeffersonian. And Freud said, no. And I said, well, if you look at Brandeis and you look at what he said, it's clearly he's updating Jefferson. And Freud said, no, no, no. Brandeis didn't get his ideas from other people. Brandeis got his ideas from life. And I thought that was really very nice, but it was ridiculous because here was this man who read constantly. And he finally said to me, all right, if you have to have somebody who wrote a book who was influential on Brandeis, take Zimmern. Yes, you're absolutely quiet because you don't know what Zimmerman is. Me too. <laughs> absolutely quiet. So I got on the phone after I left his office and I called my father, who was a classic scholar, and I said, Daddy, what is a Zimmerman? <laughs> and my father said, we sent you to college for this and you don't know who Zimmerman was? <laughs> <laughs> well, Zimmerman was an English Jeffersonian. And Zimmerman had written a book, which both of you know about, called The Greek Commonwealth, talking about Periclean Athens and how that was the acme of civilization. And the, among the reasons it was the acme of civilization to him was the smallness of the whole thing, the ability of all of the people, all of the citizens in the polis to participate in political life. And I think Freud was wrong that, uh, you know, about Brandeis not being affected by Jefferson at all. I think, in fact, the, the fact that Brandeis went to Zimmern indicated that Jefferson had already laid the way for him to start thinking that way. And um, in terms of Brandeis telling people what books they should read, he sent a copy of Zimmern to virtually everybody in his family. So I think there it is. It's a Jeffersonian and put actually on an international scale, if you will. What an amazing contribution. Let me just uh, stress how important it was that Flip has identified the Greek polis through Alfred Zimmern and Jefferson as Brandeis's two great influences. And as she notes, Brandeis not only distributed Zimmern's book to everyone he could find, but quoted Pericles' funeral oration 
In his great Whitney opinion, Brandeis says in Whitney, they, the, the founders, the revolutionaries, by which he means Jefferson, not Madison, they believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty, as Flip notes in her book. That's almost a direct quotation or paraphrase of Pericles' funeral oration taken from Zimmern's book. And then he, to complete the circle, Brandeis travels with Zimmern to Palestine for the first time when he visits as the head of the American Zionist movement, which we'll talk about in a bit. And he's serenaded by 23 young uh, people singing Hatikva, and he sees in Palestine, in the Kibbutzim, the apotheosis of the Greek polis and the Jeffersonian shires that he idealized. So it's a very romantic vision of American democracy rooted in the Greeks and in Jefferson. Mel, I know you're, you're gonna, we're all going to want to respond to all of these points, and you can, you can chime in on Jefferson. Well, I, I want to defend <laughs> Paul. Okay. Right. All right, that's a fine thing to do. Um, defend away. I would say that Brandeis became a Jeffersonian without knowing it in his mm. youth. Uh, what he valued about Jefferson was the small unit economy, the independence of the farmers, right? That's mm. essentially Jefferson. Mm. He saw that in person in Kentucky. His father had a wholesale grain business. And young Louis used to go with him on a wagon, no cars in those days, as his father went around, both in Kentucky and up into Indiana, to, uh, these were primarily German-speaking farmers who had settled there, and Brandeis and his father were both fluent. And he saw there the independent farmer. He saw people on their own freeholds who were not beholden to banks. He just didn't know this was Jeffersonian. But he saw what Jefferson had wanted. This was the Jeffersonian ideal. His father was an extremely successful wholesale grain merchant. They owned land. They owned a, a steamboat at one time. But now, I mean, compared to US Steel or some of those companies, he was small potatoes, but successful there, independent farmers. What I would suggest is that when he finally does read about Jefferson, when he reads Zimmern, when he goes on this almost a pilgrimage, the way he describes it to Monticello in the 1920s, it's like, I've been here before. I was here 60 years ago, and now I know the name of it. So in some ways, he did get his Jeffersonianism out of his own experience. Fascinating. And this, of course, contrasts with the uh, notion of Brandeis as a conventional progressive who put great faith in experts in government. In fact, he, he was suspicious of big government just as much as he was suspicious of big business because he thought that in both circumstances, people couldn't master the facts that were necessary to understand complicated institutions. And that was the core of his critique of J.P. Morgan and his galvanizing manifesto, uh, Other People's Money, which denounced the House of Morgan for taking reckless risks with uh, financial instruments whose value they couldn't possibly understand. Uh, and as a result of giving way to the curse of bigness manifested by our financial oligarchy, uh, Brandeis predicted the crash of 29 and would have predicted the crash of 2007. I want to read from Brandeis's uh, great opinion in Liggett and Lee, which is his best uh, account on the Supreme Court of the necessity of protecting small businesses and the danger of large corporations, and then ask 
both of you to parse his critique of bigness and its relevant for today. Here is Brandeis and Liggett and Lee. There is a widespread belief, Brandeis wrote, that the existing unemployment is the result in large part of the gross inequality in the distribution of wealth and income which giant corporations have fostered, that by the control which the few have exerted through giant corporations, individual initiative and effort are being paralyzed, creative power impaired, and human happiness lessened, that the true prosperity of our past came not from big business, but through the courage, the energy, and the resourcefulness of small men, that only by releasing from corporate control the faculties of the unknown, many, only by reopening to them the opportunities for leadership can confidence in our future be restored and the existing misery be overcome, and that only through participation by the many in the responsibilities and determination of business can Americans secure the moral and intellectual development which is essential to the maintenance of liberty. Wow, now that is great writing. And, one, and we're, we're gonna read a bit of Brandeis tonight. One thing about his writing is that it's so direct and modern. He's speaking directly to us in his prose as in his politics. Brandeis is a Democrat, unlike Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's much more florid and striving for philosophical abstractions. Brandeis goes through draft after draft to make his opinions as instructive as possible. He told a law clerk, the opinion is now convincing. Can we now make it more instructive? So flipped, the topic on the table is the curse of bigness expressed in uh, Brandeis's book, Other People's Money, and in his Liggett opinion. Tell us about his critique of large corporations and respond to the challenge offered by some today that Brandeis was naive, that he didn't understand the economies of scale that can come from integrated institutions in a global economy, and therefore that his critique may no longer be relevant today. Uh, flip, no, no, flip first. Let's stay in order because we all have so much to say. Okay, well, if, um, it's easy to pull Brandeis into the current day, and I have to tell you that Jeff does this phenomenally in his book, um, looking at the questions of bigness today, things like too big to fail, uh, all these things you know, have a Brandeisian resonance with us. Um, there's no question that, again, as a Jeffersonian, unless I think it's a progressive, because the progressives were very big on big government and on big solutions, and Brandeis was really not too happy about big government any more than he was happy about um, big business. I think when we look at Brandeis today, we can come up with some basic lessons, but we have to be really careful not to say what Brandeis would say about very specific things today. For example, we can say, since Brandeis thought that really large economic institutions were extremely dangerous because they were going to become corrupt and they were not gonna be good for democratic society, we cannot say whether Brandeis would have approved of specific legislation today that is meant to limit what the banks can do or whatever. I think, um, we can say Brandeis was very wary of the power of money in politics, um, and big money particularly. Brandeis, as someone who had lived in Massachusetts, battled the influence of money in the Massachusetts legislature long before he went on the national scene. Um, so maybe we could say 
we think we know how Brandeis would have come out on Citizens United, but that's pushing it. Brandeis was so much a man of his time. He believed so much that you look at law and, the, uh, and morality in light of the moment of history, in light of the needs of the current moment, that it's unfair to him, I think, to say we know what he would say about today when situations are so different. So I think we can take his principles and say they apply, but we have to be really wary about talking about the specifics. Great, Mel, let me just note that uh, I had the great privilege of interviewing Justices Ginsburg, Kagan, and Breyer for this book. Justice Ginsburg did say to me when I asked, he would not have been a fan of Citizens United, not at all. So, <laughs> so she was unequivocal about that. But Mel, without, you know, you can respond as you think best, but historically, let me just ask you, uh, it strikes me that Bernie Sanders was, got the wrong analogy when he attributed his proposal to break up the banks to Theodore Roosevelt, because in fact, in the election of 1912, it was Roosevelt who wanted to maintain big banks and create big regulatory bodies to oversee them. Taft wanted to prosecute them with vigorous antitrust enforcement. Brandeis and Wilson wanted to break them up. So why is it that well, the Bernie current gets candidates a, Bernie don't... gets a lot of things wrong, and that's all I'm going to say on Bernie. <laughs> um, on a nonpartisan basis, good. Yeah, on a nonpartisan basis. Yes. All right. If you are listening closely to the passage that Jeff read a few minutes ago, and if you can remember back to Economics 101, which is, I know for all of us, a long, long time ago, there's not a lot of economics in that passage. There's a lot of morality in that passage. And this is um, what a number of scholars, including me, um, have questioned about Brandeis's economic thought. Not the overall big part. I think most of us are agreed on the curse of bigness and the, uh, the dangers that bigness poses to a democracy. But what Brandeis was opposed to bigness was not primarily on economic grounds, but on moral grounds. The new freedom, which he helped Wilson craft, was designed because at that time, economic success was seen as moral success. This is an old inheritance from our Puritan ancestors. And the notion was that the marketplace was where a person tested himself, and in those days it was usually himself, uh, and the ones who, but you could not test yourself, you could not go out into the marketplace if it had been corrupted by big corporations who are closing off the avenues of opportunity. Now, this is not a question of too big to fail, or who controls market, or this or that, it's a question of, and it's very Jeffersonian, it's providing an, a market in the broadest sense of the word where people can test themselves, where they can succeed. And if that market is closed off, then democracy itself fails. Nothing economic about this, this is all moral. It's not that Brandeis was an economic simpleton, he wasn't. And he knew himself that there were limits to what he was advocating. But uh, a number of antitrust scholars have told me that Brandeis is really the father of modern antitrust, not because of the Clayton and Sherman Acts, but because he was the one who first laid down the notion of central and peripheral markets, which is the test that courts use today 
in antitrust suits. So the man was no economic simpleton, but when you read a section like that, don't look for Eco 101, look mm -hmm. for Ethics 101, because that's what he's talking about. Le um, I buried the lead. Uh, I was so excited to get started that I neglected to note that today is June 1st, the 100th anniversary of Brandeis's confirmation to the Supreme Court. So first of all, happy Brandeis Confirmation Day, Justice Brandeis. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> uh, Flip, uh, the confirmation hearings were hotly contested. Brandeis waited 125 days between his nomination on January 28, uh, 1916, and his confirmation on June 1st. That record has not yet been surpassed by any nominee, although it will be in July if we uh, wait a little bit longer. Uh, tell us about the opposition to Brandeis. Flip, part of it was based on his crusading uh, critique of bigness and the oligarchic uh, enemies that he had made and there was some anti-Semitism as well. I think that uh, overwhelmingly the opposition to Brandeis was the opposition to a radical. Uh, he was a radical in many ways. We've just heard how he was a radical for those days in his thinking about economics. He was a radical in the people he chose to represent as a lawyer. I mean, long before 1916 when Brandeis was put on the court. He represented causes he believed in without any fee. He was the first people's attorney, and he was called the people's attorney in the press generally. If you will, he was the forerunner of Ralph Nader when Ralph Nader was still doing uh, pro bono work. And what Brandeis did was he represented unions, very radical thing to do in the early decades of the 20th century. Brandeis represented uh, people who were interested in saving the environment. I mean, think about this, how radical is that? It's still considered fairly radical today, right? So, and people was going after big money. Brandeis was going after the trust. Brandeis was going after J.P. Morgan. And so you had those forces um, coming against him. You also had part of a legal fraternity challenging him because the legal fraternity was very much plugged into the existing establishment, economic and other, and they thought that he was very dangerous. There was a certain amount of anti-Semitism, certainly, in the opposition to him. I think one can overplay how much that was because it was basically his ideas, his radicalism, although there, was, there were some nasty anti-Semitic jibes along the way, but by and large, the guy was a menace. He was a menace to what was seen as the establishment way of doing things. And so menaces always inspire opposition, don't they? They tend, they tend to do that. Mel, pe people criticized him for being a radical and predicted he'd be a radical on the court. And in fact, on the court, he pretty well uh, enacted the vision of political economy that he championed as an advocate, striking down laws that he disapproved of, like the centralizing New Deal, and upholding laws he uh, approved of, like uh, economic uh, uh, protectionism by the states. Well, not quite. Um, first of all, let me just tack on a, P, a PS to what Flip said. Um, years ago, when you could still go into the Library of Congress and actually touch the manuscripts rather than read them on microfilm, um, I looked at the, I, I had an abortive 
doctoral dissertation on Brandeis and Wilson. So I went to the Wilson papers, and I got out, there were two full manuscript boxes of letters that Wilson had received during the nomination, you know, commenting on his, you know, his naming of Brandeis. And it was very, very interesting. 90%, of course, were praising him. The ones who were opposed to it, I think I found one letter that mentioned that he was Jewish. The rest were saying exactly what Flip said. He's a radical and should not be on the court. Um, I think Flip and I both agree that there was some modicum of anti-Semitism. Um, and there are, we, we, there are some letters like uh, Gus who writes to Taft who says if he wasn't a Jew, he would have been voted down. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there wasn't that much. On the court, um, you got to be careful. He did, of course, vote to strike down the NRA during the New Deal, but he voted to support every other New Deal measure, even if he didn't like them. Mm -hmm. um, Paul Freund once said he would, what, vote against the widow, the orphan, and there was a third one there. I don't remember what it was, if he thought, you know, depending on the law. Um, in his majority opinions, he, like everybody else, has to speak for a minimum of four other people. Um, and so he wrote very careful, very short, very concise, these are the facts, this is the law, ergo. But when you read his dissents, that's where you get what I think Jeff is talking about, because his dissents are essentially Brandeis briefs. And in fact, uh, who's the, the guy? The, but the, you should explain what a Brandeis brief a is. A Brandeis brief, okay. In the, uh, the case of Lochner versus New York, a New York um, hours law had been struck down because the court said it didn't uh, do anything to meet the requirements of uh, police power legislation, did nothing to protect the health, welfare, or safety of the bakers. Um, three years later, Brandeis is asked to represent the state of Oregon when one of their laws is challenged. This was an, an hour's law for women, and he agreed to take it on two conditions, one of which was that he had full control over the appeal to the Supreme Court, which the state of Oregon was very happy to give him. And secondly, he turned to his sister-in-law who was there with the National Consumers League and says, and you people have to do the research for me. He turned in a brief that was totally unique at the time and had two at the most three pages of legal citation and a hundred pages of references and quotes from medical journals, from uh, state reports on everything, all to show that long hours affected uh, the health of women workers. He himself said that the title of the brief should have been what every fool knows. Um, but the Brandeis brief became the template from then on for reformers, uh, right down to this day, for reformers who are trying to show that a law meets a legitimate constitutional imperative. The second most famous Brandeis brief was the one the NAACP put together in Brown versus Board of Education. And just a few years ago, we saw it in the Michigan Affirmative Action cases. Big brief showing not what the law is, but why the facts of society require that this law be upheld. The, the Brandeis brief is 
central, and Justice Ginsburg told me that it had inspired her in her path-breaking briefs arguing for gender equality in the 1970s. Uh, we now turn to free speech and Flip's <coughs> superb book on the Whitney case, which is just riveting in telling the story behind this astonishing conviction of a woman for her speech defending the Constitution and Brandeis's evolution, which led him to write the most important free speech concurrence of the 20th century. I'm gonna read it again because it's really worth uh, reading a passage, and there's so much to talk about, but then we're gonna uh, try to parse Brandeis's beautiful philosophy. Here is Brandeis in Whitney versus California. Those who won our independence believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end and as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. That's the Pericles paraphrase. They believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth, that without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile, that with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine, that the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people, that public discussion is a political duty, and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. Wow, I mean, you just read that stuff and say, this is constitutional poetry. And it starts uh, slowly and modestly and, and technically and slowly builds in its passion and by tethering together these clauses of increasing length and balance, he culminates in a claim about the intention of, once again, those who won our independence. He's talking about Jefferson and the revolutionary, not the founders in Madison that ends up transforming the meaning of the Constitution itself because there had been a battle since the time of the framing between the views of those like Jefferson and Madison who in the Virginia and Kentucky Resolution argued the government had no power to prosecute speech merely because of its bad tendency to inspire contempt for public officials and those like John Adams who passed the Sedition Acts to prosecute their critics. And these laws were so politically biased that the Sedition Act of 1798 forbade criticism of the Federalist president, John Adams, but not of the Republican vice president, Thomas Jefferson. And it took Brandeis through an extraordinary evolution uh, of thought to distill the Jeffersonian position into this remarkable passage. And note, I'll just begin by noting how central reason is to Brandeis's view of democracy. It's not like Holmes. Holmes has contempt for what he calls the thick-fingered clowns we call the people, and believes that you have to protect free speech because if you don't, if the strong can't crush the weak through law and speech, then open violence will resort. But Holmes has no faith in the ability of public discussion to produce truth. Brandeis, by contrast, inspired by Jefferson, whom he quotes twice in that incredible passage. He quotes Jefferson's letter to Elijah Boardman in 1808, as well as quoting Jefferson's first inaugural address, uh, talking about the importance of protecting error of opinion. Brandeis is basically saying, 
because citizens have an obligation to develop their faculties of public reason, because they have to educate themselves to make them worthy of democracy, as long as there's time enough for deliberation, then the best remedy for evil counsels is good ones. It's only when there's not time enough to deliberate and reason together that you can ban speech, and that's why he came up with the principle that speech can only be banned when it's intended to and likely to provoke imminent violence. That is the crown jewel of the American free speech tradition. It distinguishes us, as Flip and Mel have noted, from Europe, where hate speech can and is banned on a daily uh, basis. And it's all based in this Jeffersonian faith in reason and the possibility of public discussion producing truth. So that's my initial take. Um, uh, Flip, there's so much to say in this book, but tell us about Anita Whitney who she was, and what she was convicted for, because that will give us a sense of what led to Brandeis's great opinion. Okay, you can tell that Jeff really doesn't like Brandeis, right? <laughs> I've, I've been proselytizing this poor audience about him for months, so now is the time to just come and let it all hang out. Well, you have three Brandeis lovers up here, yes. to be fair, to be fair. Um, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story of Anita Whitney because we would be here until tomorrow if I did, and I love the story. Okay, commercial. You should buy the book. And you have you can to read buy the, the story book. yourself. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Speak freely. Whitney versus California and American speech law. It's just wonderful. But the um, case that Brandeis writes in comes out of the experience of World War I and the years immediately after. When during World War I, the uh, government passed the, something called the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which allowed the federal government to prosecute anyone who criticized the war effort, who criticized the government of the United States, who criticized the Constitution, who criticized the uniforms that the soldiers wore. It was an incredible kind of, of uh, law, but under it, more than 2,000 people were prosecuted, and most of them were sent to jail for up to 10 years. And so th this comes out of a period of massive suppression of speech in the years following the First World War, many of the states followed the model of the Espionage and Sedition Acts, largely because they were concerned about radical labor movements, and again, made it illegal to criticize the political system of the United States or the economic system of the United States. Anita Whitney was a woman who came out of an aristocratic American family Five of her ancestors came over on the Mayflower, and many of their descendants were quite distinguished as well. And she believed absolutely in the founding documents of the United States, particularly the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Constitution. And seeing that the uh, reforms of the political and economic system did not, she thought, bring about real fairness for most of the workers in the United States. Remember, this is the era of uh, massive trusts and when workers were not yet getting minimum wage, maximum hour laws. She gradually became radicalized, became first a socialist and then a communist. But a communist who absolutely felt that there should be no violence, that gradually the political system and the economic system of the United States should be changed through the ballot box but because she helped to organize something called the Communist Labor Party of California, she was convicted. 
and she was sentenced to one to 14 years in San Quentin Penitentiary. It was her appeal to the Supreme Court that led to Brandeis's wonderful opinion asserting the need for free speech in a democratic society. And that had never been spelled out by a Supreme Court justice in quite that way before. And as Jeff indicates, that language gradually becomes incorporated into the language of the rest of the Supreme Court's decisions on speech and makes American speech today the most permissive in the world. One, Mel, I just want to note that uh, Flip <laughs> says in this ahead, book, shit, no, no, we're, I, 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 you, 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 I'm not going to quote from the book, but it's amazing what Anita Whitney was defending. She's denouncing racial inequality. She's arguing for women's suffrage. She's quoting the Declaration of Independence. She's basically imprisoned for defending the Constitution and the details that you reveal are really incredible. Mel on hey, Whitney. Look, what makes Whitney important is when we first begin to get new speech cases, a new version of speech, mm. Holmes comes up with the clear and present danger test in Abrams. The only problem is conservative, it's a very subjective test, and conservative judges always found radical speech clearly and presently dangerous. And the notion that you can't shout fire in a crowded room is of absolutely no use to a lower court judge mm. trying to determine whether or not certain speech is protected. What Brandeis does in Whitney, and as he tells Felix Frankfurt in his first cases, I thought at the problem, I didn't think through the problem. In Whitney, he does what Holmes doesn't do, never did. He explains why free speech is important in a democracy. Holmes treats free speech in a philosophic manner. You know, if it can get accepted in the market of ideas, that's a philosopher talking. What Brandeis is saying is that the most important position that anyone can hold in a democracy is a citizen. And he's been saying that ever since he was a reformer back in Boston in the, uh, the turn of the uh, century. But for a person to be a good citizen, to partake in policy-making decisions, that person has to know what the issues are. Not only what the issues are, but what both sides of the issue are. You have to, if there's a particular law that's being up for a referendum, you have to know what the people who favor it say, as well as what the people who oppose it say. Therefore, free speech is important, not just because it allows philosophers to talk, it's important so that the citizenry can make intelligent decisions. And the citizenry is supposed to take part in policy making at town hall meetings, at voting, at running for office, whatever they do. And Whitney is the foundation stone of that notion. That's, so even though people still quote Holmes, clear and present, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably the most cited dissent in American history. When judges go to determine whether or not certain speech is protected, they go to Whitney, they don't go to Abrams. And may I just add something to that, Jeff? If you think about it, um, the notion that all speech must be allowed unless it's inciting someone to immediate criminal action is really extremely radical. It means you have to allow hate speech. It means you have to allow things that are absolutely noxious, things that are, that are going to hurt people who hear the speech. But the way to think about it, I think, 
And while Brandeis didn't use exactly these words, this is really what he's saying is, the right to speech is actually the right to hear. Mm. And that's really an important way to think about it. It's not so much that the person has the right to express himself or herself, although he thought that was important too, but it's more that we the people have an absolute right to hear every idea that's out there. Because without that, we can't, as Mel said, we can't make intelligent decisions about policy. That is a beautiful statement of Brandeis's vision and combined the right to hear and combined with Mel's notion that Brandeis had faith that citizens had the right to hear the best arguments on both sides of important public issues that they could make up their own minds. I have to hope that Brandeis would have approved of what we're trying to do at the National Constitution Center and what you are doing by participating here because this is our mission to be the one of the few places in these polarized times that brings together the best arguments on all sides, that brings together liberals and conservatives for not political debates, but for constitutional debates so that we the people can educate ourselves. And it's offered up in a Brandeisian spirit and I'm so pleased to share it with all of you. We have to talk about privacy, we've got to talk about Zionism, and then we have to ask these phenomenal questions from our great audience. So here is Brandeis on privacy. I hope you don't mind my reading these passages, but you're gonna get them whether you want them or not, because they're so <laughs> great. This is Brandeis in the Olmsted case. And Olmsted, it's in, this is an amazing story. So um, Olmsted is a case involving wiretapping, and it's 1927, and the government puts wiretaps on the sidewalks uh, leading up to a guy's office, and they eavesdrop his phone, and they conclude he's a wild bootlegger, and he's convicted of violating prohibition laws. So he objects that his conviction is invalid because it had no warrant. And a majority of the court, in a wooden opinion written by Chief Justice Taft, said no trespass, no warrant required. Since his property rights weren't violated, the framers required a physical trespass to trigger the Fourth Amendment, therefore there's no problem. Brandeis dissents in the most glorious opinion that literally looks forward to the age of cyberspace and Skype. He has in his desk drawer a clipping about a new technology, television, but he misunderstands television. He thinks it's a two-way technology where people can see each other on both sides of the camera. Basically, he anticipates Skype uh, but his law clerk, Henry Friendly, said, you can't just look out of a television camera and see people on both sides. Now, of course, you can. So Brandeis took out the reference to television, but he alludes to an age of webcam and uh, cyberspace where people will be able to extract data virtually and introduce it in court without physical trespass. And he's saying at the time of the framing, the privacy invasions wreaked by general warrants and writs of assistance, which allowed the king's agents to rummage through desk drawers, were far less than the invasions of wiretapping, where you can hear the conversations of people on both sides of the wire. So here is Brandeis anticipating cyberspace and challenging us to translate the values of the Fourth Amendment so it protects the same amount of privacy in the age of the wires as it did at the time of the framing. Uh, here he is. Uh, the progress of science in furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. Ways may someday be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court, and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Advances in the psychic and related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs 
thoughts, sensations, and emotions. That places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer, was said by James Otis of much lesser intrusions than these. To Lord Camden, a far slighter intrusion seems subversive of all the comforts of society. Can it be that the Constitution affords no protection against such invasions of individual security? So he's anticipated fMRI technology and mind reading and brain scans. Flip, in the book, I agree with the scholar Neil Richards, who says that Brandeis changed his mind about privacy. In the 1890s, he wrote the most famous article about the right to privacy ever, complaining that new technologies like the Kodak camera and the instant press were ensuring the gossip that used to be whispered in the closets was now shouted from the rooftop. But a scholar called Richards, in a great book called uh, Intellectual Privacy that I want you to read as well, says that Brandeis changed his mind because he came to see that protections for honor or dignity that allowed public figures, like Hulk Hogan, for example, to sue the press for truthful but embarrassing invasions of privacy clashed squarely with the First Amendment. And Brandeis came to believe that when free speech and privacy clashed, privacy should trump, and he came to reconceive privacy not as a right of aristocrats and celebrities to protect their honor against an invasive tabloid press, but instead the right of all citizens to protect their intellectual privacy and cognitive liberty from a prying government. And I found Richard's account to be persuasive. Uh, Flip to you. And, and what do you think about this evolution, this huge question of how the greatest author of the right to privacy ever could, you know, in future years then seem to prefer free speech to dignity? Do you think he actually changed his mind? And how does Olmsted reconcile with that earlier article on the right to privacy? I think uh, what Brandeis came to do was think about privacy in the context of encroachments by the government that would negate the possibility of speech, that the problem with the government doing all of these things that Jeff has talked about, and getting access to people's thoughts, was that it would interfere with the kind of democratic process that we just spoke about, where people have to be absolutely free to speak and to hear. And with the government encroachment um, on privacy, whether it was mechanical or otherwise, that would not be possible. The interesting thing to me about the Brandesian approach to privacy is the way it has changed and morphed um, as the 20, late 20th century notion of privacy has pushed into areas that Brandeis simply did not think about. When we think now about bodily privacy, uh, the, the right to reproductive freedom, that kind of thing, it's building on the idea of privacy that comes out of the Fourth Amendment and Brandeis's approach to privacy, but it goes into areas, obviously, that he did not think about and that he had nothing to say about. I think, um, just if I can go back for one second, to the way he changed his thinking about privacy from the time he wrote the article to the time he wrote the uh, case that, uh, from which Jeff has just quoted. One of the really important things about Brandeis was that he was capable of learning and he was capable of changing his mind. And he did, seriously. One of the things that I love about the man and I say that I'm as guilty of this as Jeff is about loving the man. Uh, one of the things that I love about him is that he started out being absolutely opposed to women's suffrage. He thought there was no reason whatsoever for women to vote. 
He was absolutely a man of his time. We're talking about the late 19th century here. One of his daughters, in particular, got into the suffrage movement and began pushing him. But more than that, as he got into his radical activities that made him so frightening when he was nominated to the court, he began working with women who were doing wonderful things for the public good. Um, they'll mention uh, Brandeis' sister-in-law who helped him put together the, the famous Brandeis brief. Working with her, working with some of the women of the labor movement made Brandeis realize that maybe these women really deserved a place in the public sphere. And he ultimately ended up working with his daughter, the suffragist, actually chairing a suffrage meeting at which Jane Addams spoke and ultimately saying it is not only the right of women to participate in the government and by voting, but it is their responsibility because we, the men, need them. The country needs them and they have to participate. Okay, so what it, an enormous change in thinking that was and that's the kind of thing that happened, I think, in his thinking about privacy. Fascinating. Mel Brandeis on privacy, did he change? Remember what Flip said a little earlier about uh, free speech, not only the right to express, but the right to hear. Mm -hmm. Many years later, after Brandeis was dead and the court finally adopted his Fourth Amendment notion, mm -hmm. Potter Stewart came up with the exact phrasing that had Brandeis thought of it, he would have used it. The Fourth Amendment protects people, mm -hmm. not places. This completely turns the Fourth Amendment around from the very wooden opinion that Chief Justice Taft mm -hmm. wrote in, in uh, Olmstead. By the way, that opinion was a five to four opinion. It was, um, Holmes agreed more or less with Brandeis. He didn't like the privacy part. He agreed mm -hmm. with the Fourth Amendment part. Uh, Stone, Harlan Fist Stone was on the court by then, and he also agreed. But one of the most interesting dissents came from Butler, Justice Butler, one of the four mm -hmm. horsemen of the apocalypse, who absolutely destroyed Chief Justice Taft's historical record and everything. Now, the original Brandeis article in the 1890s that he wrote with Sam Warren was based on common law. There was no constitutional hint in the 1890s that privacy might be a constitutional right. And in fact, we've had people like Justice Bork and others who have said it ain't there, so it can't be. By the time he writes Olmsted, what he's done is he's found in the Constitution what he couldn't have found back in the 1890s. And there's a wonderful phrase, I don't know why you didn't read it, Jeff, you've read most of the... <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to. Uh, the right most cherished by civilized, by civilized men, men is yeah. the right to be let alone. Mm -hmm. By whom? By the government. Beautiful. Now, finally, I think that one of the great Brandeisian opinions is that of Justice Brennan in New York Times v. Sullivan. That, if you recall, was a libel civil rights case um, in which Brandeis's whole view of privacy and free speech, which you know, people seem to think were in conflict, Bren uh, Brennan solved it. He said, if you're a public figure in government, you don't have libel protection. If you're a private citizen, you do. And I think um, if you look at Sullivan in the light of that criticism, I think it resolves the issue. Zionism. Uh, 
an amazing evolution. This secular Jew who's uh, had Christmas trees when he was growing up, whose parents uh, were descended from uh, Frankism, which was a precursor to Reform Judaism, who basically didn't repudiate his Judaism but didn't uh, embrace it, suddenly in his 50s becomes the head of the American Zionist movement and is more responsible than anyone else in the 20th century for persuading Woodrow Wilson uh, to work with the British government to recognize an independent state of Palestine. It's an amazing evolution and well, you, you both Flip and Mel tell the story of his important encounter with Jacob de Haas and his experience in the garment workers uh, strike. So Flip, why don't you tell the story of those two meetings which persuaded Brandeis to become a Zionist? I want to defer to Mel to that uh, okay. on, on that first because he's the one who has written most extensively about Brandeis and Zionism, and then I'll add something. If well, you, you know what, since, I was, since we're talking and going in order, you tell in your book about the extraordinary influence that Zimmerman's uh, okay. Greek Commonwealth had on Brandeis and Zionism. So tell us intellectually how he evolved and then what his vision of Zionism was. All right, when um, I was writing the biography, was researching the biography, I couldn't figure out why Brandeis had become the head of the American Zionist movement. I really couldn't figure it out because he was raised as a very secular Jew. He had what we might call the Jewish ethic, but he certainly wasn't interested in the Jewish religion. And there were a number of theories by people who had written before, including that Brandeis had been the um, object of anti-Semitism and that that had turned him into a Zionist. And it just, it, I couldn't find any, really any evidence of that in the historical record. And I kept looking and looking and looking and looking. And what I found was that Brandeis had made one trip to Palestine um, in 1919. And that's when he had gone to all of the kibbutzim and he had thought that this was really rather wonderful. And looking at that trip, again, I wanted to know why had he gone. And I tried to trace his trip from Washington to Palestine to see who had gone with him. Everybody wanted to go with him. He was the, the Supreme Court Justice at that point. He was amazing Jewish leaders. Everybody wanted to go with him, and he was very careful about who he took to go with him. And then I learned about Zimmern. And it seemed to me that Brandeis's view of what he saw as the Jewish colonies in Palestine absolutely paralleled the way Zimmern had talked about Periclean Athens. And I thought there had to be a connection between the two, but I couldn't really find one. So I started tracing Brandeis's trip, as I said, from Washington um, to Palestine. And I got him to England, and then, because he stopped in England on the way, and I got him to Cairo, because he, that's the way he went, and then all of a sudden, I began to see things about Zimmern. I said, you know, what is this? What is this Zimmern thing? Well, I got a friend in Israel to go to the archives of the Kibbutzim to see who had ended up in Palestine with Brandeis, and lo and behold, there was Zimmern. And I said, aha, I found it. Now I know why Brandeis became a Zionist. He read Zimmern's book, that I already knew, and he thought that Palestine could become the new incarnation 
of Periclean Athens. And I was sure of it. I was absolutely sure of it. The only problem was I couldn't prove it. So I wrote the book anyway, and I said, this is my hypothesis. And then actually, Mel knows his story because Mel and I were both at a conference in England. And we went to the Bodleian Library of Oxford, went to the Zimmern papers, and there in the Zimmern papers was this letter from Brandeis saying, you were my entry into Zionism. Wow. Yay, I found wow. it. Wow, <laughs> spectacular. Uh, both of us had to sign the pledge at the Bodleian that we would not bring fire into the library. No, it, it goes on, that pledge says, nor will I eat, you know, yeah. kindle uh, strange uh, fruits right. in the library. And that you goes have to back a lot 400 things. years. Yes. Um, to tell, people as you, as you were respond, always confused about Brandeis, and there was no reason to be because he himself made it quite clear why he became a Zionist. He said, I became a Zionist because of my Americanism. And while Zimmern was important, and while Jacob de Haas was important for first introducing him to the idea of Theodor Herzl and Zionism, the really important person was Horace Meyer Kalin, mm -hmm. who came up with the notion of um, pluralism in American society. Uh, he denied the idea of the melting pot where everybody went in and you know, came out the same, but rather all different groups had to contribute. The main problem Brandeis had to overcome was that of the German Jews who ran, German-American Jews who ran the American Jewish Committee, who absolutely detested Zionism and said it was a question of dual loyalties. You couldn't be an American and be a Zionist, because to be a Zionist meant that you had your allegiance to a foreign state. And Kalin showed Brandeis this didn't have to be, but Brandeis came up with the notion that what does Zionism, what does Americanism stand for? It stands for equality, it stands for democracy, it stands for recognition of the individual, and this is what Jews have stood for for thousands of years. Therefore, to be a good American, one should be a good Jew, and to be a good Jew, one should be a Zionist. And Brandeis was able to turn what had been a moribund movement into a politically powerful had a, uh, it went from 12,000 members in 1914 to 180,000 members by 1918. But there's a problem here, a real problem. Brandeis idealized Palestine from that trip mm -hmm. that he took. Uh, he writes home, you know, the letters to his wife, now I know why people have fought over this, this place is wonderful, this, that, and the other thing. If any of you read Exodus when it came out, Remember, or saw the movie, remember with that archetypical Jew, Paul Newman as Ari Ben-Kanan? <laughs> um, that was the view of Palestine that Brandeis gave to American Jewry, this very idealized view, which has been the source of both American Jewry's support of Israel, as well as our angst when the state of Israel doesn't behave the way we think it should. And um, Brandeis, you know, I agree completely with Flip. We don't know what Brandeis might have said about this or that or the other thing. He certainly believed Jews should defend themselves. In fact, he was part of a money laundering scheme in the 1930s uh, that provided money to David Ben-Gurion to buy guns for the Haganah. Mm -hmm. um, if you had fun finding Zimmern, I followed the money from Brandeis 
through about three or four Zionist offices until uh, through Stephen Wise to David Ben-Gurion. Um, so Brandeis was a money launderer. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, well, our audience uh, is concerned about a few other aspects of his legacy as well, and I need to turn to the phenomenal questions that we have. There are at least three questions, one from a member of our simulcast audience, thank you so much, one beautifully typed, I don't know how that uh, transpired, but it's really <laughs> impressive, uh, about his concurring opinion in Buck versus Bell. Buck versus Bell was the infamous eight to one decision upholding the mandatory sterilization of so-called defectives. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in his now infamous majority opinion said, it's better for all the world if instead of continuing to propagate their kind, the cutting of the fallopian tubes will ensure the survival of the race. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. Now, Holmes is an enthusiastic eugenicist. He wasn't upholding this law reluctantly. He goes back and writes to his friend Harold Lasky that evening, this morning I upheld the law mandating the sterilization of imbeciles. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure. So Holmes is, not, is like other leading progressives of his day, including Theodore Roosevelt, is an enthusiastic supporter of this uh, attempt to so-called defend the, and purify the race. And interestingly, the only dissenter in Buck v. Bell, Pierce Butler, is an Orthodox Catholic. Um, liberal, uh, Protestant, Jewish, and uh, Catholic denominations were enthusiastic for eugenics. They were crazy for it, like all progressives at the time. It was the Orthodox Catholics, Jews, and uh, uh, Protestants who objected. So I think my first response to the question Brandeis is concurring silently, unlike... He didn't, he didn't write an opinion. He, he, he voted, but he, he wrote voted. no opinion. And everyone else joins. So is it fair to say that, unlike Holmes, he was not himself an enthusiastic eugenicist, but here was going along with his views of judicial restraint and was deferring to state legislation, which he tended to like to do? Try to remember when that's written. It's in the 1920s, okay? It's before the judge's bill. It's before the court becomes a constitutional court. It's before we rediscover the Bill of Rights and begin applying them to the states. And Brandeis, like all the other members of that court, unless there was a specific constitutional prohibition, he was not going to, you know, unlike some of the conservatives who went and found prohibitions, there was nothing there that said that the state could not do this. If that case came up today, it would be much different because we now have a jurisprudence of individual rights that was totally lacking in the 1920s. Um, it would be nice if we could say that on a number of issues that we consider important, like race, like uh, genetic, this sort of thing, that Brandeis would have been on the right side. But he was a man of his time, and we have to judge him by those times. And a man of those times who left us some very important legacies. I, I'm a little less sanguine about the whole thing, I have to say. Um, every idol has perhaps not totally feet of clay, but maybe a toe or two. And <laughs> I think that this is, this is one of those situations. I mean, Brandeis, as the great moralist, I agree, could not have said there's something in law that, that prohibits what the states are doing but that he had nothing to say about the awfulness of it, I find very difficult to deal with. Just in the same way that he was not an enthusiast 
about racial equality. And it's perfectly fine to say, well, most people weren't in those days, but some people were. And some of those people were among the Brandeis coterie. So um, as Mill said, he was very much a man of his time. And he was also, difficult though it is to say, an imperfect human being. And sometimes he made mistakes. Well, on the question of racial equality, a, a, a member asks, what did Brandeis think about Woodrow Wilson's racial attitudes and policies? In the book, I acknowledge squarely that Brandeis, like Jefferson, his idol, did have a blind spot, and that blind spot was race. And as Flip says, it is unfortunate that a justice who was such a crusader for equality for women, a topic on which he changed his mind because he worked with these brilliant women in the women's suffrage movement, including uh, Josephine Goldmark, his sister-in-law, is silent on racial issues. And he basically joins the court in every race case that comes up in his time. Some of these are pro-racial equality, others are not, but Brandeis says nothing, unlike his outspokenness in all these other issues. Uh, there's a great uh, article uh, by Chris Bracey, my GW colleague, that basically takes Brandeis to task for an extended period of racial ambivalence and suggests, unlike Jefferson, Brandeis didn't own slaves. He wasn't openly racist. He prided himself on the fact that his family in Kentucky had servants and not slaves. He did advise uh, uh, the founders of Howard University and Law School in a way that inspired Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston to uh, write the Brandeis brief that led to Brown. But I agree with Flip that he, uh, this is the, the stain on his legacy that he was not more outspoken and didn't more clearly draw the connection between his crusading desire for what he called racial equality for the Jews, and he was using the Jews as a race or nationality, and uh, equality for African Americans. But Mel, on the specific question, you know, Woodrow Wilson is taking uh, deserved heat nowadays for his open support of federal racial segregation. Do we know what Brandeis thought about Woodrow Wilson's racial attitudes? I found. Um, in addition to the biography, I've, David Levy and I have edited seven volumes of Brandeis' letters, and um, there was nothing in either the Wilson papers or in the Brandeis papers or in about 200 other collections that we looked at that had Brandeis' letters in which there is a single comment on this. May I just add that I think um, Brandeis coming from an abolitionist family probably believed what many people in the United States then believed, which was that slavery was terrible, uh, certainly wasn't in favor of discrimination, but didn't think beyond that, didn't think that the ending of slavery necessarily meant that something had to be done about the status of the African Americans who would come out of slavery about the lack of skills, about what the legacy of generations of slavery. And so the thought of racial equality just wasn't there. I think there's one thing that's rather telling. Brandeis did support the idea of Howard Law School, Howard University Law School, which was an African-American law school, and said uh, 
to the, one of the founders of it, you have to make sure that you have a really first-rate faculty, otherwise you will not have a really good school, and he assumed that that school could graduate really good lawyers. So he was not totally blind to it, but this was just not something that he really thought about. Citing the scholars Fishkin and Forbath, I suggest that one reason that progressives today may have failed completely to embrace Brandeis is because the tradition of economic populism that he and Jackson and Woodrow Wilson and Thomas Jefferson represented became less salient in the 60s when progressives became more concerned about extending equality to minorities and women and other disadvantaged groups. And I thought that was a very powerful argument. But another reason, I guess all of us have to ask why, given the fact that our hero is so inspiring and salient uh, and relevant to issues in the election of 2016, from breaking up the banks to the challenges of new technologies, why is he not embraced more by the civil libertarian liberals and libertarian conservatives who should be his natural constituents? And here I think my thought is that Brandeis was opposed to bigness in business and government. By contrast, libertarian conservatives who abhor big government may be less suspicious of large corporations, although not all. Some have embraced the freedom to fail. And some civil libertarian liberals who oppose big government are, uh, are, uh, are less, uh, who rather, uh, who, who oppose big government are less uh, concerned about uh, the menaces of corporate uh, power. You, you uh, should note, though. Sorry, who support, I, I bungled it. But it's, it's, a, it's a parallelism. The civil libertarians who support big government are opposed to corporate power. Just remember that in the 1920s and 30s, um, there was no civil liberties tradition in this country. The ACLU was still a struggling and relatively small organization, as was the NAACP. It is Brandeis who first argues that the 14th Amendment will apply free speech to the states. It is Brandeis in Whitney and in Olmsted and in other cases who first begins to spread the doctrine of incorporation whereby the Bill of Rights is applied to the states. So to blame him that he did not share the same views as liberals in the 1960s, uh, the question is, those liberals in the 1960s wouldn't have had anything to stand on if it hadn't been for Brandeis in the 1920s. We have time for just a few more questions, although you can tell that this is a discussion I do not want to uh, end. Two of our uh, members ask about the infamous anti-Semite and racist, and I do not use these terms lightly, James McReynolds, one of the most unpleasant people oh. ever to sit on the Supreme Court, also appointed by Woodrow Wilson because he was a trust-busting populist attorney general, but so anti-Semitic that he often leaves the room when Brandeis is speaking uh, and refuses to uh, return until he stops and writes to Taft, I am often not to be found when there's a Hebrew abroad. According to some accounts, uh, Brandeis, uh, uh, McReynolds refused to appear in the court's picture with Brandeis, but Mel, I think you think that that is not exactly right. Tell us about the court picture story, and one listener asks, why didn't Brandeis punch McReynolds in the nose for his anti-Semitic <laughs> uh, attitudes? And the other uh, asks more politely the same question, why didn't Brandeis take Actually, McReynolds to Actually, the other members task? of the court didn't like McReynolds any more than Brandeis did. Mm -hmm. Holmes couldn't stand them. Um, he called him a natur mensch. Right, and um, both Taft and Chief, Chief Justices Taft and Hughes both thought that he was a shirker, 
didn't carry his fair load, so, brand, you know, that's there. There was a famous story that we now know is false, that one year uh, there is no court picture because McReynolds refused to sit with Brandeis. Mm -hmm. And the current curator of photographs at the court went back and found a letter in which he said, look, we took a picture last year, McReynolds writes this, the court hasn't changed. Isn't, hasn't our practice been that we don't take a new picture unless a new justice comes? And Taft writes back, says, absolutely right, and cancels the meeting. So it wasn't that he refused to sit with Brandeis because every other court picture has McReynolds there. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's that year there was no new appointee. So not that this makes McReynolds a better man. He was still not a good man. <laughs> Nor was the fact that during World War II, McReynolds used his personal fortune to support war orphans from Great Britain. It still doesn't make him a better person. He was a son of a bitch. I mean, that's... <laughs> uh, well said. I think, unfortunately, it's time for closing statements, although there are some more great questions. And the last question that I want to ask each of you is, why does Brandeis matter, and how does he inspire you? Flip. I'm sorry. What did why does Brandeis you? matter, and how does he inspire you? How is he meaningful to you? Why should our audience care about him? You have to repeat it for me. I'm, I'm not hearing you. Why does Brandeis count? Why does he inspire you? And okay. why are you still interested yeah. in him? Okay, I apologize. I have a, I have a hearing disability. It's not, uh, I'm sorry. Every oh. once in a while, I need a deep voice. I went to Brandeis University as an undergraduate. And there is on the campus of Brandeis University a statue of the justice. Um, I have to stand up to show you this where he's in his robes, and he's reaching like this, and his robes are going out behind him like this. He looks like a big bird ready to take off. <laughs> and I didn't quite understand that. I was a music major, and I didn't have a great background in politics or law, and I thought, this is really strange. I mean, this university named after him, I don't know why, with this guy with a big bird. And I just left it alone. We weren't taught about Brandeis in those days. Well, the world changed, or at least my part of it did, and I became a political scientist. And I got to the point where I was writing about constitutional law, and I thought, I really ought to write a biography of one of the justices. And at that time, I was thinking of writing about William O. Douglas, but he was still on the court and I had ethical problems about writing about a living justice. And so I remember this guy, the, the bird, taking <laughs> off. And I said, well, OK, so let me take a look at him. And I started to read about him. And I thought, this is amazing. I mean, why do I not know more about this man? This man was into everything. He was into privacy. He was into speech. He was into corporations. He was just absolutely amazing guy. And at one point, I discovered, and I hadn't known this, that Brandeis was the leader of the American Zionist movement. And I didn't know anything about American Zionism. So at that point, I thought, I'm going to have to give this up. I can't possibly write about this, because I just I don't know enough. And I said that to a wonderful political scientist and historian named James McGregor Burns, who wrote wonderful books about Roosevelt. And some of you may know some of his books. And I said, Jim, I have to give this up. I can't, I can't deal with it. And he said, don't worry about it. 
Get yourself a few books about American Zionism. You will never become an expert on this subject, but you will know enough to understand Brandeis. And so I thought, okay, I can do this. And of course, then I had this wonderful experience of discovering the Zimmern connection and deciding that I had something to add about um, Brandeis and Zionism after all. But once I started writing, uh, researching rather about the man, I knew that I would go on writing about him because this was just, I thought, part of the great American story. Beautiful. Mel, why does Brandeis matter? How does uh, he inspire you? I started with Brandeis over 50 years ago at this point. Um, <clears throat> I had to come up with a doctoral dissertation. And um, we all do at some point. And Arthur Link, the great biographer of Wilson, had written that Brandeis was the intellectual architect of the new freedom. So I went to Bill Luchtenberg and I said, is this a dissertation? And Bill says, sure. And in those days, we didn't have to defend proposals. I wrote out a page, give it to Bill, he initialed it, and I was off and running. And I go down to Washington, I read through the Wilson papers, not much there. I go to Louisville and I read through the Brandeis papers, not much there. So I get another topic. But while I'm in Louisville, I had some time to kill, so I started looking through other things. And this man was into everything, and I knew even less about him. She at least had the statue. I didn't have even that to, <laughs> to go on. And um, I come back, and I, David Levy and I decide that maybe we could get into editing these papers. And, you know, cut a long story short, we did. When my Brandeis, and then later on in life, I decided that uh, I've now done seven volumes of Brandeis letters. I've written two books about American Zionism. I've edited other people's money. I've written a book of essays about Brandeis. When I retire, I'm going to write a real biography. Okay. So when the book came out in 2009, one of the questions that almost every interviewer asked was, how long did it take you to write this book? And the answer I gave them was 45 years. <laughs> so Brandeis kept coming back to haunt me. I mean, I would think I'd be finished and something else would happen. I went to law school in my 40s because I wasn't happy with how I was editing some of his legal work. So I wound up going to law school, which got me into a whole new field. Um, and I wind up on shows like this. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I have, I'm reserving for myself the, the prerogative of the closing statement. And it begins with how I was led to this great man, um, Janet Malcolm. Uh, suggested to the Eileen Smith, the editor of the Yale Jewish Live series, which I should say is generously supported by the Leon Black Foundation. Leon Black has had this great idea of commissioning these beautiful books on great Jewish lives, and they said, why don't you do Brandeis? And I was at first reluctant because Brandeis has been so fortunate in his biographers, and you see the two of the greatest ones here. And Mel wrote his spectacular book, and so did Flip. And I reviewed Mel's book for the New Republic and thought, you know, wh why do we need another book about Brandeis? But I realized we need, I needed to write this book because he personally inspires me so much and because he matters so much and because whenever I have a hard question, I ask myself, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? <laughs> so I needed to write this book both to channel him in the final chapter on contemporary issues, but also to make this passionate case to all of you in a short, condensed way about the sources of his thought and character. 
And I was so lucky to have Flip and Mel. You can see what superbly uh, great scholars they are. But they were so generous to support this project. They read the draft. They corrected errors. Who, what, what a magnificent act of scholarly generosity. So thank you so much for helping uh, improve this uh, book. But the reason he matters to me is uh, both personal and uh, constitutional. He matters to me personally because unlike, it took Mel 40 years, I wrote this darn thing in six months. <laughs> and that was because of fear. Because basically I had dilly-dallied for a long time uh, and uh, you know, I'd reviewed Mel's book and read and thought, but I just didn't get started. My editor said, unless you turn it in in six months, you're going to miss June 1st, which is the 100th anniversary of his confirmation hearing. So seized with fear and with Brandeis's Athenian self-discipline in mind, I got up at 6 AM every morning for six months, wrote from 6 to 8. And I thought about him. And I thought this austere, disciplined man who thought that we should eat and drink less and read and think more would want me to finish this book. So that was helpful. And I try now. You know, I have the same temptation in moments of leisure to watch cat videos rather than read great Brandeis uh, biographies. But Brandeis reminds us that we need to use our moments of leisure to improve our faculties of reason. His, he defined leisure through Zimmern, Flip teaches us. Though the Greek word was uh, for, for employment is skola, and the word for unemployment is uh, uh, unemployment, absence of uh, uh, employment is leisure. So Brandeis says, during your leisure time, you've got to read and think and prepare yourself for the duties of citizenship. And here's the connection to the National Constitution Center. And that's why it's so beautiful that we're celebrating him here in this wonderful education center. Brandeis thought it was important, as Flip said, freedom to hear. And as Mel said, freedom to hear the best arguments on both sides. Constitutional education was not only a right, but an obligation that we all have a duty as citizens to develop our faculties of reason. Here he's like Jefferson. Jefferson believes that we have faculties ranging from passions at the bottom to reason at the top. And only by developing our faculties can we be fully engaged citizens. So that's why it's so important that you're here learning about the Constitution. That's why it's so important that we are every day trying to present to you the best arguments to bring together people who don't usually talk to each other, to understand that there are good arguments on both sides, and to take seriously the possibility that by hearing those good arguments, you may do what Brandeis did, as Flip described it, and changed your mind, and perhaps even reach a constitutional position that doesn't coincide with your political position. And that's why Brandeis's greatest gift to all of us is reminding us of the centrality and necessity of democratic education. These are polarized, anxious times when some believe that the Constitution is under threat and that only by educating ourselves about liberty can we defend it. That is Brandeis's legacy. He inspires me every day. I'm so happy to share all this with you. And together, let's remember Brandeis's great challenge to all of us. If we would govern by the light of reason, we must let our minds be bold. Thank you so much. And we'd love to go sign the book. Thank you.